As we continue to worship, I invite you to join your hearts as we pray. God of all the sheep, those who remain close to you and those who stray, those who are always faithful and those who are lost, be with us today. We are thankful you said, fear not, litter flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We are so thankful for the ease with which you walked on the earth, the generosity and kindness you showed to people, the devotion with which you cared for those who were out of the way and in trouble, the extent to which you even loved your enemies and laid down your life for them. Patient God, you know how easy it is for us to stray. We wander off so easily. We speak too much. and We rarely listen as we ought. We move when we should be still. And we come before you today even without focus. We lay our lives into the palm of your hand. You who holds us carries us, pushes us when we need it. Forgive us, we pray. Heal our brokenness and our fears. Remind us again that you lead us in gentle paths and by quiet waters when the paths are stony and the waves are tumultuous. Help us to remember your protection and your care. Help us to extend that same love and care to others. We extend it to the family of Charlie Rigsby. We thank you for his life and the generous caring he showed to others. Help us follow his lead. Bless his family in their grief. We extend it to the family of Helen Pendergrass who care for her with her new pacemaker. We extend it to college students and grad students and professors who are entering the final steps of their semester. Grant them your sustaining grace to carry them through the finish line. We extend it to Jimmy and Jackie Smith and their son Chris as he struggles with his own health challenges. We extend it to Debbie and Bobby Hunt because they've seen more than their share of difficulties. And we ask that you grant healing and strength to them and give them reprieve from this pattern of worry and sickness. We extend it to Mama Tart, to Gail and Richard as they live together in the face of challenge. We extend it to the Miller family. We thank you for the blessing of Clara in their midst and for the hands that offer her nurture and care. We extend it to those who suffer in silence, whose pain is so great that they can't share it with others. God, you see in secret, and we ask that you bless in secret and in our witness. Lord, slip up on us today. Get past our defenses, our worries, our concerns. Open our souls and speak your word into us. We believe you want to do it and we wait for you to do it now. Be with those who travel, the homeless having no home to which to return, the refugees having no land they can call theirs, the lonely with no sense of ever being community again creator of blue skies and bluebirds, of sunflowers and storms, 
sustainer of the stars and moon and all that we see in the heavens. We thank you that among all of that, we are yours and that you give your care to us. Bless us for this and every day of the life you grant. Amen.
Good morning. It is so good to see you, to worship with you today, and hopefully the theme has come through loud and clear for us, that as we continue to explore and receive the gifts that Jesus brings in his resurrection, the theme of today is Jesus' resurrection protection. And we're going to be looking at that from different angles. We've already heard about the nature of that protection from different points of view today, all feeding into our general understanding. I was um, kind of prompted as Ted shared the words from the psalm, when I am afraid. And isn't it interesting that the psalmist does not say, if I am afraid, as if we had a choice in the matter. All of us will be confronted with concerns and fears, as Danny talked about, anxieties, confusion. It's not a choice in the matter, and it's not a litmus test of faith if we experience fear in the face of that. But what we as the community of Jesus Christ here at Yates can gather around is a word of hope, a word that doesn't come from our own selves, but instead a word from our Lord Jesus himself. And it is the capacity to hear that word through the chaos, through the din of all of the voices and all the powers and all the principalities here and everywhere that are contending for our minds, our hearts, and our souls. Being able to discern the voice of the risen Lord in our midst is at the heart of that protection that we are offered in his resurrection. And so today we hear a word that comes out of a conflict after a very powerful and memorable teaching of Jesus at the temple. In John chapter 10, we'll be reading verses 22 through 30. So if you open your Bibles to John chapter 10, verses 22 through 30. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered him, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they know me. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. May God bless the reading and the hearing of Scripture today. It was winter. It's not winter time now, obviously. It was winter, Jesus tells us. So you're going to have to go back before the storminess, before March was in like a lion, out like a lamb, and maybe even look back over a couple of years and remember the worst winter you ever experienced. 
What was it like? What color were the skies? How often did you see the sun? Was the wind so strong? Did it bite you and sting your skin? Did you turn cold and dry? That sort of cold that allows no warmth to make its way into your body and stay there, that numbness that comes first to your fingers and your toes and then all over just caught up in the shivering, walking on ground that is so brittle and cold and hard it crunches underneath your feet. And all you see are the leafless trees and the bare yards. There's no sign in a winter like that of life. There's no sign of growth. We've all been through the winter, and all of you can remember a particularly hard winter. But we can't hear John talking about this moment in Jesus' encounter with the people unless we take it more than at face value. This is a good word or rule of thumb anytime you're reading John. He's never just giving you sort of a description like an almanac of the weather. And he's never telling you simply about the time of day for journalistic accuracy. There's a deeper way of hearing this beyond the weather and the time of year. He's describing a season in life. He's describing a season in faith. So he's not just talking about the weather now. It's a diagnosis of the interior condition of those whom he has now engaged. It's a diagnosis of their hearts. It's a diagnosis of their faith, of those who have gathered to celebrate the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication we know as Hanukkah. And it celebrates the liberation of Jerusalem and of the Jerusalem temple from the Syrian king Antiochus IV Epiphanes. The king, in his occupation, had desecrated that very temple. It's said that he built an altar to Zeus there. He was said to have sacrificed pigs on the altar there in order to profane the entire temple over and against all of the Jewish religious sensibilities. The Feast of Dedication, then, is a time to remember and to celebrate when the people had regained control of Jerusalem, regained control of the temple, and had cleansed and reconsecrated it to the worship of the one true God, to the God of Israel. And for over 200 years, the people had come to Jerusalem to celebrate. Year after year after year, they came to that sacred building and they celebrated the day the temple was reconsecrated to God. But since we were even tiny children, we learned that all the bricks and mortar in our lives and in our church have limited capacity to move heaven and earth. Here's the church, there's the steeple, open the door, I'll try and turn it backward. There are the people, right? I don't know if you learned that, I did. The church, we were told over and over again, was about the people before you worried about the building. Though there are many congregations that have what one of my friends called an edifice complex, where perhaps they become more fixated on the externals and the veneer, the varnish, the presentation, not only of the building now, but of our lives, and putting forth a picture of consecration that does not line up with the interior life, which may be cold, bleak, barren winter time. 
That's the diagnosis. That's the reason for this season in John today. That the people who have gathered there have failed, as we often have, to experience the eternal life that God offers us, not simply in the future, but here and now. That abundant and eternal life is something that is not simply held out as some sort of carrot at the end of our lives to entice us to good living, but is instead a blessing, an invitation to experience the abiding presence of God now and forever so that all the barriers that we may think exist between us and being at home with God are obliterated by God and the home of God is made within us and with us each and every day. That is abundant and eternal life that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of god in jesus christ but i don't want you to be mistaken now as we read this story from a long time ago this is not a historical problem something that we as humans have outgrown and it's certainly not a jewish one though this is something that is used to describe sort of the family dispute that's happening among jesus and those he grew up with This is your problem, too. This is my problem. The problem is deep down in the relationship that we believe ourselves to hold about God. And and, and so often, we seek to consecrate our external lives in such a way that we have the appearance of holiness, the appearance of piety. The exterior temple shines. It's consecrated, but we keep our hearts to ourselves. We keep... I don't know if you heard Siri just said, I didn't get that. I hope you did. But you know, when we do this, when we segregate our personal and interior lives from our external expressions of piety and holiness before God and before the world, it can create a really powerful division between us and God and between us and the world because doctrine all of a sudden instead of illuminating our minds and our hearts about who God is and how to know God better, it becomes a means of exclusion. And Scripture becomes a weapon rather than a revelation of God's life with people and God's life for people. When we consecrate all of our externals, we keep our hearts to ourselves, our neighbors can often become enemies. Instead, as Jesus, instead of as Jesus called us to make enemies into neighbors, our lives can become dried out, worn out, built on routines and rituals. Instead of seeing all of the ways we move through this life as being a means by which God might be present and God might go to work. Never forget that after his resurrection, Jesus returns to his disciples it's the most profound gesture of a persistence in relationship that none of us can match after being raised to his life with god jesus returns to his disciples and he forgives them and he offers them a word and today a word of protection in the relationship that he makes with them And our scripture today talks about that relationship in a very particular way. It's an image that may or may not resonate with us in in the way it did in Jesus' time. He talks about a shepherd and sheep. 
And we might be so familiar at one level with this image that we miss its great significance. Modern industrial farming has taken us far away from the actual relationship that those who cultivate the land and those who raise animals really strike with the land and with the animals. Years ago, when I took my youth group to Gallup, New Mexico, I believe I've told you this story before. The, the Navajo women who cooked for us every night asked if they could spend the budget, instead of going to the grocery store, that they could cook traditional Navajo food, including mutton, they said. I said, oh, that sounds really great. I'm figuring they'd go to the butcher shop and buy a certain amount of mutton and start cooking it. But instead, um, the truck pulled into the church parking lot and out <laughs> came a sheep, which they then butchered slaughtered and butchered there in the church parking lot. Much to the chagrin of my inside the Beltline Raleigh children. They had never seen the relationship, nor seen the sacrifice that animals might make that we'd enjoy a hamburger or a hot dog or mutton. The relationship between a shepherd and a sheep is a very different matter. The Israelites were a pastoral people at their heart. There were many shepherds among them. It was up-close work. It was personal work. It was hands-on work. And the shepherd was that figure who would go to great lengths to guide the sheep, to feed the sheep, and yes, to protect the flock. And this was such a significant role in community life that many of our biblical heroes are shepherds. Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David, the prophet Amos, just to name a few. The most famous psalm, the one that if I were to bet, most of you know, at least part by heart, begins this way. The Lord is my shepherd. And in scripture, when you read the English translation, you'll see that the word Lord is in all caps there. And that's to denote the Hebrew name for God. It's a special name. It's one that was revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. There when Moses asked, who shall I say is sending me to liberate the people? How will I convince them that you have sent me? God says, tell them I am has sent you. And that Hebrew word that's translated I am there is the name or is the word from which we derive the proper name, the personal name of God. In giving that name to Moses, God was giving the most intimate part of God's own self to Moses as authorization to empower him to lead and go to work. Tell them, I am has sent you. Moses learned that our shepherd is the God who is. I am. And just before the reading that we shared today, the conflict between Jesus and these opponents who remain perpetually confused, Jesus talks about himself in a very similar way. He tells a story about a shepherd who calls sheep. And those sheep recognize and respond to the voice of this one that they trust to lead, this one that they trust to care for him. The shepherd is a contrast to the many other voices that are around the sheep who might call or Prey upon the sheep for their own purposes. 
And Jesus' audience doesn't understand. It sounds like too obscure a story. So he changes metaphors a little bit, and he goes more directly. By verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. Do you hear it? I am the good shepherd. He's teaching about the unique relationship that he has with the flock and the unique relationship that he shares with our Father. In Jesus' time, community sheet pens were very common, particularly in rural village life. It was a way to consolidate resources and to hold different you know, sheet properties in the same space. But in a situation like that, the sheep, of course, will intermingle. And the shepherd doesn't go through walking into the pen. I don't know if you've ever walked in a sheep pen, but you've got to be really careful where you step. Instead, what the shepherd would do is stand at the door and have a call. And the sheep that knew that shepherd could come to the gate and make their way out. As the shepherd calls their names, the sheep pass through the gate. They gather then outside and the shepherd leaves them to the green pastures, to the still waters. It's a really noisy and woolly picture of our discipleship that he's painting for us. And I want us to hold that picture in contrast, or at least up against the times that we live in, where we seem perpetually divided about who cares for us the most. And each and every day, whether it's in politics, or in advertising, or even in the internet theological discourse, we wonder, who's got the right voice? Who is going to guide me to personal and community decisions that are faithful. And for every question that we might ask about our lives or about our situation, there are at least half a dozen answers. And what we want is someone to speak to us clearly. We really want to trust our leaders, but very seldom do we dare to do it. I don't know about you, but I hunger for an experience like Mary had at the empty tomb. She hears a voice calling her name loud and clear, and she knows instantly whose voice that is. My teacher, she says. And wherever that voice leads her, wherever that voice sends her, she will go. And this is very different than the sort of conversation that happens around us, the competition for our ears, the competition for our minds, the competition for our hearts, everyone telling you what is best for you, when really, if you scratch below the surface, it seems like what's best for them. They're competing for you, and they're competing for your families, and they're competing for your resources, and they're competing for your loyalty. They're competing for your soul. And a lot of the voices are compelling. The question is, which one will we trust? Which one will we trust? In short, the protection that Jesus offers today comes in his presence as he speaks his own word to us. Jesus doesn't move through the communities of disciples like some sort of voiceless ghost appearing and disappearing, but instead returns to these communities with specific words, specific actions, specific teachings, mandates, and all the rest. He brings his word to us. 
And Jesus assumes now that sheep, just as any good shepherd in Israel would know, are called and led. They're not poked and they're not prodded. We may take this for granted, but it speaks powerfully of the relationship that Jesus casts with us. You know, we think sometimes the best way to motivate people to something new or to motivate people to the place they should go is to stand behind them and to provoke or to push or to bully or to force them along. And sometimes that can have really great short-term effectiveness. Even if we pay a price with long-term health and long-term commitment, all the movements that come from pushing and provoking and prodding seem to end when that leader runs out of energy or time to push or people get tired of being pushed. Who shows up to any moment just looking forward to more coercion? But the voice of the Good Shepherd is the one that reflects God's own loving voice. The voice of the Good Shepherd is the one that speaks into our confused lives. The voice of the Good Shepherd is the voice of the one who chooses to lay down his life for the sheep. It is the voice of Jesus. Do you know that voice? Now, one of the most iconic images in media in the 20th century came from an oil painting that was actually painted at the end of the 19th century by Francis Barraud. It's called His Master's Voice. And you may have seen this. It's a, it's a little terrier named Nipper, a white terrier from Bristol, England. And he's looking into the bell of a wind-up Edison Bell phonograph. And, and the puppy's head is kind of turned like this. And he's looking really curiously at that device. He recognizes the sound, but it's not the place he's used to hearing it from. And so there, that image, it might even still speak to us in the 21st century. When Barad went to the Edison Bell Company trying to sell the image, thinking they might find it useful, he presented it to one of the executives there, James Ho. And as Ho listened to the presentation, as he looked at the image, all he could say was, Dogs don't listen to phonographs. Well, maybe not, but this one did. And while there are a lot of insights from that image, the one that I want us to hold out today is that no matter where you hear it, the voice you're listening for is unmistakable if your ears are trained to hear its sound. And so that's our task and our hope as Christians, is to tune our ears, our hearts, our minds, and our lives to be able to perceive, to hear, to receive, and respond to our Master's voice. The voice that belongs to the one who loved because, the one that we can love because he first loved us. You'll hear it in words of Scripture. You'll hear that voice in times of honest prayer and in worship. You'll hear that voice from one another in the words and in the actions of the women and of the men in communities like this one at Yates who share your commitment to hear that voice above all else. And hearing that voice doesn't always happen easily. It doesn't always happen 
readily, even for those who are closest to him. But remember this good news, that we listen for a shepherd who keeps calling. And he keeps calling a flock that together is straining to hear that voice that leads to life. You know, last week in the announcements, I mentioned we had a health crisis in one of our Sunday school classes. And as emergency made its way in, and I'm so grateful for EH having so many medically competent people. We have one of everything that we need. And so we had doctors and nurses and those who could tend to the acute health situation. There's also trauma for all of us. Not just in the moment seeing a friend who's suffering, but it also surfaces all kinds of grief and pain of other experiences that we've had of loss and having to watch others among us suffer. And we gathered in the parlor as the medical practitioners went to work. And before we prayed, it wasn't by accident, we recited together that very famous psalm to remind us that as we pray, even through our crises, together we can strain and incline our lives to hear the voice of the one who will lead us through and lead us home. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Maketh me to lie down in green pastures and leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. Leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.